You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. verses 12 and 13 together, and then we're going to open our time in prayer, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Bow our heads together. Our Father, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb is your word to us. It is truth you sanctify us by your truth and open our eyes that we may behold from your word wonderful things. Thank you that in this revelation is wisdom and truth. And we thank you that you have honored this word even as your own name. And we ask that we might stand before it with humble and receptive hearts and that your spirit might teach us this morning all that you have for us by way of application and instruction in righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Last week I told you about two equal and opposite errors that are made by Christians when it comes to living the Christian life. On the one extreme perspective is the quietism, that belief that when it comes to living Christianity, I just have to submit and yield and surrender myself and that God will do all of the living of my Christian life through me. I just sort of sit back and coast, don't resist anything, don't put forward any effort and let go and, what is the word? Let God. Then on the opposite side of that is pietism, and that is the, I do all of the work, and I'm saved by grace, but I'm sanctified by my effort, and so I have a catalog of lists and do's and don'ts and things that I need to do in order to be sanctified, and so it's an outward structure, an outward list of things, and I'm going to put forth all the effort, and God will sanctify me through my efforts, and that is pietism. Now last week, after I described both of those two errors, we had a, I had a friend who had joined us for the worship service last uh, Sunday. He was here. He lives in California. He grew up where my wife grew up, up in Saskatchewan. And we went to, out of the four years that I was at Bible college, he was in college for three of those five years with me. He was a year ahead of me. I took off one year after third year. He took off two years after third year. So we ended up going to fourth year together. And we became, in fourth year, very good friends. And we've stayed good friends and kept in contact regularly, sometimes weekly, uh, since Bible college days, and he comes up and visits me. He was here last Sunday. He said to me after the service, he said, I wanted to raise my hand and tell everybody, I could tell you some stories about pietism. And I knew what he meant by that. What he meant by that was my first two years of Bible college, because I was a pietist. Now, if any of you after last week were wondering, hmm, I wonder if Pastor Jim ever fell into one of those two errors, pietism or quietism. The answer is, I was a pietist. Now, how many of you would have guessed that that's what I would have been when I first became a Christian, a pietist? Some of you nodding your hands. I asked a couple guys, what would you, what would you nail me as? Pietist or quietist? Pietist. No, no hesitation whatsoever. Pietist. That's what they would have classified me as in early Christian, my early Christian life. Of all the errors that I'm prone to, it would be pietism. You know why? A part of that is just my personality. Part of that is the way that I'm hardwired. I'm not a low-key individual just by nature. That's, that's not me. I'm not. My New Year's resolutions don't sound anything like this. This year, I want to take a little bit more time off. 
I want to take some time to smell the roses. I want to get centered. I want to find the real me. That's not the type of stuff I say. My New Year's resolutions are things like, I want to be more intense this year than I was last year. I want to take less time off, become more disciplined, and get more done, read more books, plant a bigger garden, add fruit trees to my yard. Those are my types of New Year's resolutions. Friends, I wouldn't have time to find myself even if I thought I had lost myself. I'm not that type of person. I find myself, to give you an idea of how high-strung I am, I found myself just the other day pacing in front of my microwave. Do you know that it takes two full minutes to heat up a cup of coffee from room temperature to where it's hot enough to enjoy? Two minutes! We can't find a way to heat up coffee faster than two minutes? And I pace back and forth in front of the microwave. That's, that's me. I was diagnosed, maybe you don't know this about me, I was diagnosed with ulcers by the time I was 10 years old. I had an upper GI where I drank that liquid chalk, chalk stuff and then had to take pictures to see where it's running out in your guts through all the holes. That was me. I had Mylanta milkshakes when I was a 10-year-old. I had Mylanta that I took to school with me because I drank that before every meal and after every meal and several times a day and before I went to bed. Ulcers. I'm just a tad high strung. And that's the type of individual I am. So when I became a Christian, guess what I brought right into my Christian life? That high strung. Now I've calmed down quite a bit. I really have calmed down quite a bit. When I first got married, we would sit down at a table, just Deidre and I, and she would put out a beautiful meal and I would have the plate there and I would dish up and I would be done eating before she had salted and peppered her (laughs) plate and got all the garnishes and everything buttered and sort of sat down and the steam had vanished from her plate long after I was done eating. And I would just wolf it down. And then I would get done, thanks for the wonderful meal, honey, pick up my plate, walk over to the sink and put it down, and I would be done before she had even started. Well, I'm, I'm not like that anymore. I'm a, I'm a little bit more mellow than I used to be. I actually sit down now and we make our kids sometimes wait until, the, until Deidre's done before we dismiss everybody and get up from the table. I sit and I chat now. But when I first became a Christian, that wasn't me at all. Very high-strung, very driven. I love tasks. I love I love goals. I love lists. I love rigor. I love formulas. I love structures. I love schedules. I love deadlines. That type of stuff just, I thrive on that type of stuff. And the more pressure, the better. I get more done under pressure than I do when there's no goals or no deadlines. I was a pietist. That was my error. I was a pietist. Now what we want to do in going through Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians chapter 2 is to avoid becoming a pietist and thinking that all of your holiness rests on what you do outwardly and becoming a quietist and thinking that you can sit on your spiritual laurels and God will do all of the work without you. We don't want either of those two extremes. So last week we were looking at Philippians chapter 2 and all we did was sort of see that these two things go together. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You do this. You pursue this. But I'm confident of this very thing, that it's God who will complete the work that He began in you. So the two go together. We can be neither quietists nor pietists. And we want to bring them both together and say, I'm going to cooperate with God in my sanctification process. I'm going to grow in holiness, and I'm going to grow in my walk with God, but I'm go- that's going to happen through my effort by the grace of God. So is it my effort? Yes and no. Is it just the grace of God? Well, yes and no. It's really both. Philippians chapter 2. Last week we just saw how they go together. This week we're going to focus on the human side of it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're just going to look at one half of this equation. 
work out, you work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Now, we're going to cover the human effort side of it, but I'm, I want to give you a disclaimer, a word of warning. Actually ask you for a favor. If at any time this morning you hear something from me that sounds like I'm slipping into my pietistic ways, and I am jumping off into pietism or trying to defend pietism, would you just for a week give me the benefit of a doubt and wait until we get done with verse 13? Just give me that much, that much grace. If you start to say, boy, it sounds like he really believes in salvation by works, sanctification by works, just give me till next week. till we get to the God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Give me that far. But don't think that anything that I'm going to say this morning is a defense of pietism, of self-righteousness, because it's not intended to be at all. So we're going to look at the human effort. I want to see three things in verse 12, real simple. The goal of our effort, the nature of our effort, and the spirit in which we exert our effort. The goal of our effort is obedience. Just as you have always obeyed, in my not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul says, then the nature of our effort, that is, you work out your salvation, it's work, and then the spirit in which we exert that effort, you do so with fear and with trembling. The goal, the nature, and the work. Let's look first of all at the goal of our sanctification or our effort towards sanctification. Verse 12, so then my beloved. Now the Apostle Paul is, begins, with a, begins with a phrase of affection toward the Philippians. And I want you to catch that because sometimes it's easy for people who have been pietist or tend toward pietistic tendencies to begin to talk to you about working out your own salvation. You forget the fact that this is all delivered in a spirit of love. The Apostle Paul is saying, my beloved, a term of affection. He doesn't want this to come across in a wrong way. He wants them to understand that there's love in these words and a love that we're, we're supposed to receive what he's saying in the spirit in which it is given. And it's a spirit of affection and love. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obedience is the goal. It is the end of my effort. Just as you have always obeyed. Now the Philippian congregation was not a congregation that needed a lot of correction. They were not a congregation that needed a lot of rebuke or reproof. There is little to nothing in this epistle. There's nothing in this epistle by way of rebuke. There's no reproof. Even what Paul does say when he says, look, I urge those two women, Yodia and Syntyche, to live together in harmony. It's it's showered by affection and love and grace and kindness. There's nothing like you read in the letters to the Corinthians where Paul is just really, boom, nails them. And, now get this right. You should have had this by now. No kind of reproof or correction. Why? They had always obeyed. This was a model congregation. This was a congregation that had a couple issues Paul needed to deal with, but they were marked by obedience. And Paul says, I want that obedience to continue. Not just as in my presence when I'm there, just because you think I'm coming. I don't want you to obey just because you think I'm coming or because I might be there or when I am there, I want you to obey even in my absence. If you were with us for Philippians chapter 1, you saw how Paul wrestles with this idea of his absence and his presence. Do you remember that from Philippians chapter 1? If I continue on in the flesh, it's really good for you. But if I go to be absent, it's good for me. And, and which one do I choose? And Paul says, I, I know it's better. He says this in chapter 1, verse 25. I'm convinced of this, that it's more necessary for your sake that I continue in the flesh. And so I will continue on for your progress and your joy in the faith. In other words, if I'm there, it's better for you. 
It's as if the Apostle Paul felt that his absence from the Philippians may be adversely affecting them in some way. That they may begin to coast a little bit in their walk with the, in the Christian life and that their progress may, might sort of slip back. And here in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's wrestling with this issue again. My presence and my absence. I want you not to obey just when I'm there. I want you to learn to obey when I'm absent as well. The word obedience is kind of an interesting word in the Greek. Hupo akuo. Hupo means under. Akuo, the word from which we get our word acoustics. It means to hear. The word literally means under hearing. In other words, when you listen to something and you hear it, and then you submit yourself to what you have heard, you have obeyed. Do you get that picture? So a parent says something, and the child hears it, but he doesn't do it. Is that obedience? No, it just proves that they can hear, that they don't need a hearing aid. But when they hear it, and then they submit themselves to it, and place themselves under what is heard, then they have learned obedience. That's what Paul says. I want you to place yourself under the hearing of the Word. When you hear something, you commit to obey it, and you place yourself under what's being heard. Every parent understands that. Every parent also understands the desire to have children who will obey you in your absence. Right? Do you want your child just to obey when you're around and in the room or when you leave the room too? Do you want your spouse to be faithful and hold to their vows only in your presence or in your absence too? As a boss, do you want your employees to do what they're told and to work hard only when you're there on the job site or when they're absent as, when you're absent as well? Paul says, I'm going to be absent. Chances are that I could be absent. I desire to come to you. I'm convinced that I will come to you. But I don't want you to obey just because I'm there, just because I happen to be present. I want you to learn to obey in my absence. We have this discussion with my children every once in a while. Every parent does. You drop your child off at a babysitter's house, grandma and grandpa's house. You have them spend the night with somebody. And my kids get the same speech every time that happens before we ever show up somewhere, driving in the van, and I give them the little talk. You know what the little talk is? Look, I'm going to drop you off at so-and-so's place, and I want you to obey Mrs. So-and-so just as you would obey me. I want you to be obedient to my desires and my commands and my standards in my absence, not just in my presence. In fact, when I am gone, that's when I really want you to be obedient. Right? Why is that? Because do you want your 13, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old deciding that they're going to do their own thing when they get to be a teenager? That's the real danger, isn't it? They don't want that. Every parent wants to raise children who are obedient, not just in their presence, but also in their absence, obedient to the commands, obedient to the Lord, obedient to the Word. We want to raise children who, when they get to be adults, they obey whether we're there or not. That's what a mature believer does. Same thing in the Christian life. Paul says, I'm, I'm going to be gone from you, but I want you to learn even much more to be obedient to the Lord in my absence. He doesn't want their progression in the faith to sort of sort of fall back. Another thing that's there in that passage, and I want you to see this, you and I should never be dependent upon somebody else for our spiritual growth. Do you see that? Paul didn't want them dependent upon him for their spiritual growth. It's easy to grow spiritually when we're surrounded by good teachers or good preachers. It's easy to grow spiritually when we're surrounded by our fellowship group or our accountability group or we have somebody there who's holding our hand and leading us along but the desire for every parent and for every pastor is to have people that they have mentored and discipled and walked with who will learn to obey and learn to grow and progress in their faith whether they're present or not. You should never be somebody who just obeys when the teacher is there, when the spouse is there, when your parent is there. 
You learn to obey and you walk with God even when nobody else is there. And even if nobody else would ever find out what you did when nobody else was there. That's the goal of obedience. That's the goal of our effort. To become obedient people to the Lord. Why would we call Him Lord, Lord, and not do what He tells us to do? If we're going to bow before Him as Lord, if we're going to confess Him as Lord, profess Him as Lord, exalt Him as Lord, then we need to treat Him as Lord. And we need to obey what He says we need to do. That's the goal. It's obedience. And just as you have obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, put forward the extra effort to obey when nobody is there. That's the goal of it. Next, look at the nature. Work out your own salvation. What's the nature of our effort? Work. I want to just discourage you just for a second, folks. The Christian life is not an easy life. It's not just come to Jesus and God will fix your marriage, fix your financial troubles, fix your job, fix your business, fix your leg, fix your back, fix your mind, fix your problems. That's not it at all. The Christian life is a life of work. And it's hard work. It's strenuous work. It takes labor. It takes discipline. It takes focus. It takes purpose. It takes perseverance. Katergadzomai is the word that Paul uses. And it speaks of pursuing after something. Striving after something. Working or laboring at something. That's why the Christian life is likened to a race. Running a race. Fighting a fight. Boxing a match, an athletic event, a soldier going to work, uh, to war, a farmer out working in his field. All of those analogies are used to the Christian life. Why? Because it's work. And furthermore, the Apostle Paul puts the word work in the present, imperative, continuous mood. That mood that says this is something that I want to continue on and on and on. Now does this sound like a man who believes that you just reach a crisis in your life and then you can simply surrender, submit, God will do all of the rest. Does that sound like what Paul's saying? I want to encourage you with something. You are going to fight and you are going to labor and you are going to work and you are going to strive and you are going to hurt and you are going to struggle all the way till the day you die. Let that be an encouragement to you. You say, why is that an encouragement? Because if you're always looking for that day when the struggle vanishes, you'll never ever see it. And day after day after day will go by, and you will not be looking behind you, but you'll be looking forward to that day when the struggle vanishes, and there's no more war, and there's no more struggle, and there's no more effort against sin, and the desires aren't there, and the temptations aren't there, and the thoughts aren't there. You're never going to reach that. If you understand that up front, then when that day never comes, you'll never be discouraged. Instead, you'll look back and you'll say, hey, the person I am today is different than the person I was two years ago. And this is going to continue for the rest of my life. That's what I get to look forward to. So rather than being discouraged that you're not making the progress you think you should, you'll be encouraged that you're making as much progress as you are. But it's going to continue till the day you die. And it's work. And it's striving. And it's pressing on continually, and anybody who ever offers you a quick fix for the Christian life and Christian struggle and the war against sin offers you a fraud. There's no magic bullet. There's no quick fix. There's no magic formula. There's no pietistic style of living that makes it easier. You have to work at it. And you have to labor at it. Are you lazy? You say, well, that's easy coming from a pietist. You're an ulcer-ridden, cantankerous... Lacking joy-filled middle-aged man. I almost used the word old man. That might come easy for me because that approach works for me. That approach helps me. 
Those things come naturally to me, easy to me. But friends, just because you happen to struggle with it doesn't mean that that's not what you have to do. You've got to struggle. And you've got to labor. You have to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You have to work at it. That's the nature of it. You work. And you work hard. Now look at the spirit in which we put forward our striving. Now you may be asking yourself, well, you're telling me I need to work, but you're not telling me what I need to do. I'll get to that in just a second. I've got a whole list of things you can do. I'll get to that, but let me look, I want you to look at the, the spirit in which we put forth our effort. That of fear and trembling. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What is fear and trembling? Phobos. Phobos is the Greek word for fear. It has a wide variety of meanings in the Greek. It can mean um, trepidation. It can mean uh, terror. It can mean reverence and awe. Just like our English word fear carries sort of all of those words. It can mean dismay. Tramos is the word for, for tremble. It's the word from which we get our English word uh, tremors or trembling. And it means to shake or quiver in somebody's presence. You, you work out your own salvation with a fear and with trembling. Now, who or what are we to fear? Because the phrase, when Paul uses it, means to quiver or shake in somebody's presence or because of something. Now, Paul actually uses that phrase four times. Once here in Philippians. The three other times that he uses it, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of walking into Corinth with fear and much trembling. What is he talking about? He's talking about when he walked into the city of Corinth with that onerous responsibility on him of accurately preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I did so with much fear and trembling. I didn't place confidence in my own flesh. I didn't place confidence in my own ability. But I walked into Corinth and I was shaking because I had this daunting task of communicating the gospel to a pagan culture, and he knew that in light of the final day that he had to execute his duty with fear and with trembling. It wasn't with flippancy. It wasn't with irreverence whatsoever. But it was with this overwhelming responsibility of what he had placed in front of him to do. He said, I did it with fear and trembling. It's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, to speak of how the Corinthians received Titus when Paul sent Titus to Corinth. Paul sent Titus with a harshly worded letter. A scathing letter where he just took them to task. That's the letter we don't have in our New Testament. He just took them to task. And when Paul, when Titus, as Paul's emissary, his mouthpiece, his representative, showed up in Corinth with that letter, Paul said, you received him with fear and trembling. They trembled in the, in the face of Titus. It's used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, to speak of slaves rendering obedience to their earthly masters with fear and trembling as to Christ. Paul says that as a slave or as an employee in today's vernacular, you are to look beyond your earthly boss to the person to whom you render service. And because it is him, that is, it's because of Christ, you render it with fear and with trembling because of the heavy weight of responsibility that is upon you. So when Paul uses that phrase, fear and trembling, what does he mean? He's talking about a reverential awe in the face of responsibility, a reverential awe in the face of God or before God in light of that final day of judgment. You, you work out your salvation, you put forth this effort, and you do so with much fear and trepidation, with trembling, because of who it is that you're, who it is that's work in you and what it is that you're working out. You're working out your salvation. So with that great sense of responsibility, with fear, with trembling, you labor. Constantly laboring with that heavy weight that is upon you. 
Now, this is not a terrorizing type of fear that an unbeliever would have in the face of God. This is not a fear that that pagans had of their deities where they sacrificed their own children to appease the gods. That's not the type of fear we're talking about. We're talking about a heavy, substantial, serious understanding of the issues involved. That it is God who it is that we are pleasing. It is God who is at work through our effort and the heavy responsibility that, listen, there is going to be a day of accounting. I believe when the Lord is going to say to you and I, how much effort did you put forth in your sanctification process? Did you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And we're going to have to give an account for that before the Lord. Man, that ought to quicken your hearts just a little bit, shouldn't it? It certainly quickens mine. And you don't have to look out at modern evangelicalism for very long, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that fear and trembling have all but vanished from the evangelical American church scene. All but vanished. We don't have fear and and awe and trembling before God anymore. In, In most evangelical churches, the Word of God, the preaching and teaching time, the whole worship service is approached with a flippancy and an irreverence that ought to make anybody tremble. Because it's just flippant. Worship has become irreverent. Exposition has been replaced by entertainment. We just want stuff that's fluffy, light, soft, keep it simple, no doctrine, nothing divisive, nothing deep, nothing serious. We just want Christianity light. We want to drive through our church service, order it through the speaker, have it handed to us from the window. We want a fast food Christianity. No room for the holiness of God. No room for anything serious. When was the last time you saw people tremble before the Word of God? You just don't get that anymore. I heard just this last week a news story about a church that's hosting a Bible study in a Hooters restaurant. I wish I were joking. I'm not. Another Bible study in a bar. Why? We want to be relevant. Come on. Just a few months ago I told you about Clown Communion, right? Remember Clown Communion? What a joke that was. Clown Communion. There's no fear and trembling. When was the last time you opened up the Bible and before you read it, you trembled at the threshold of the biblical text because of the truth that's revealed in here? Do you approach it with that kind of seriousness? I think every parent has to do this at one point or another. I've had to do this at several points. In our family, we try and teach our children to be reverent toward the Word of God. When it's taught, when it's preached, when it's opened, when it's read, when we're discussing it, we don't we put up with a lot of horseplay and goofing off and a lot of times during the day and all night long. But when it comes to sitting down in, the fam- in, as a, in a circle as a family and approaching the Word of God, we want fear and we want reverence. We want fear and trembling, trepidation, and we want pe- our kids to know that this is a serious time. Now, every once in a while this happens, and I love it when this does happen because it gives me a chance to do a little correction as a parent. And I'm not going uh, to name any names because I don't want to embarrass any one of my children, but okay. One time, a Sunday school teacher came up and said, your oldest son is causing some trouble in Sunday school class. Now, don't try and guess who it is, because it's not important who it is. But it gave me a chance to sit down with him and to say, look, when you cause a distraction in a class where the Word of God is being taught or read or preached or expounded upon, what you're doing is you're communicating to the teacher, to God, and to everybody else in that room that hearing you is more important than hearing God. And that your jokes and your flippancy and your lightheartedness and your sort of uh, goofing off and all of that in the presence of that 
is far more important than people hearing what God has to say through the teacher. And that's irreverent. And I won't have any more of that ever again if you know what is in your best physical interests. And usually that's enough to, to quell it. But we need to be reminded of that once in a while. We crack open the Word of God, it's a serious time. We can goof off, we can play, we can joke around, we can have a lot of fun. But once we approach the Word of God, on this one I will look, Isaiah 66, 2 says, on him who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my Word. I want to be the type of man who trembles at the Word of God and does so with seriousness. Now let's apply all of this. What does this mean? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that look like? How do I do that day by day? What, what do I do for the rest of the afternoon? What do I do tomorrow morning when I wake up? How do I work out my salvation? One quick note before we leave the subject of working out. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul is not saying work in or work at or work on or work for your salvation. Do you notice the difference? Not work for your salvation because salvation doesn't come by works. Not work at your salvation in hopes that someday you will attain it. The Apostle Paul is assuming that salvation is already present in the lives of the Philippians because you can't work out something that has not already been worked in you. God has to work salvation in you before you can work it out. So Paul says, I'm, he's essentially saying, I want you to live out the full implications of your salvation. Conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. That high calling with which you have been called, live in a manner that is worthy of that high calling. That's all working out your salvation is. And I want you to notice, this is the practical part of it now. We've got about a 15-minute conclusion. This is the practical part of it. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you have to understand that you have to work. God is not going to let you sit on your spiritual laurels while He does all the work for you. Now listen. You are not made holy by your efforts. Neither will you be made holy apart from your efforts. Okay? You're not made holy by your efforts. But neither will you be made holy apart from your efforts. Is it my Bible reading and my prayer and my disciplining myself and my structure and my order that I impose on my own life for the purpose of godliness? Does that make me holy? It's God who makes me holy. Is He going to do it apart from those things? No. He has determined to use your efforts. You are, here's the good news, you are predestined, Scripture says, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8. Before time, before time, before creation, God predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And you say, well then I don't have to do anything. It's predestined to happen. All I have to do is sit back and let the Lord do it. That's not how it works. Wrong. It's because you have been predestined that God says you work it out and it'll happen. It's because He has predestined you to that end that you say, I can therefore put forth the effort and I can therefore discipline myself and it'll come to pass. Now some of your circuits are just firing and mixing up and you say, how does that go together? That's the way it is. God's purposes for you are accomplished through you. He's not going to sit back while you do nothing and make you holy. He could do that, but He's not going to. He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And because the end is predetermined, He says, you go out and you do it. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is a beautiful truth. What does it look like day to day? How do I live this? What do I do tomorrow? Well, for one, you flee youthful lusts. 
you flee from youthful lusts. You discipline your mind. So when the thought pops into your mind, you get it out of your mind. You say, I can't do that. I, I can't control what I think. That's baloney. You can control what you think. If you're a Christian, you can control what you think. It's unbelievers that cannot control what they think. Any Christian can control what they think because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So you flee youthful lust. You have a problem sitting down in front of a computer screen? Is that when temptation strikes? Is that when you're at your weakest? Get rid of the computer screen. Get rid of the computer. Get off of email. Get off the Internet. You stop it. You read Scripture and you stop it. Whatever it is that you're tempted to do, you don't do it. Is that easy or is that easy? You say, it might be easy for you. You don't struggle with anything. What are you, crazy? We all struggle with things. It's not easy for anybody. Is it in TV, in front of the TV, that you really struggle? Then get rid of that monster. It's better to pluck out your eye and go to heaven than to go to hell with both of your eyes. So you take sin seriously. And you don't entertain it up here. When it comes into your mind, whatever it is, you view that thought, that temptation, that inclination as a declaration of war on your soul by the enemy. And you don't give him any ground whatsoever. And you don't spend your time thinking about things that will destroy your marriage and destroy your children and destroy your job and ruin your life and place you in danger of hellfire and judgment. You don't do that. You don't give time to things that will ruin your life. You discipline yourself. So you read the Bible so that you have something to think about. You read it every day. You know what happens when I wake up and I don't want to read Scripture that morning? You know what I do? I double the amount that I normally would have read. You know why? To make myself do it. I got a little quote in my office. J.P. Moreland said, You will never amount to anything in life unless you habitually learn to do what you do not want to do. So that's what I do. You say, well, Jim, you're a great person. No, no, no. It's just a matter of doing what I sometimes do not like to do. So you read the Word of God. You obey what you read. You pray. You use your gift in serving other people. You control your tongue. You control what you think about. You control what you say. You do everything without grumbling or complaining. You use your gifts in service. You do not look on anything that is impure. You sacrifice for others. You give. You lay yourself low. You humble yourself before others. You consider other people's interests as more important than yourself. You confess your faults. You repent of your shortcomings. You analyze your own heart. You discipline what you think about and how you spend your time. And you use it wisely. They say, Jim, all you're doing is giving us a list of biblical commands from Scripture. And that's right. That's all it is. That's all the Christian life is. It is simply laboring and striving to be obedient to the Lord in presence or in absence. And thus I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. And I have to put forward the effort. I have to put forward the effort to read my Bible. I have to put forward the effort to pray. I have to put forward the effort to, to discipline my mind and my own heart and examine myself day by day by day. All of that is just the walking out and the living out and being obedient to the Word of God. And as a Christian, you can do that. And as a Christian, you must do that. Because if you don't pursue holiness, Scripture says, and you don't attain holiness, you cannot see the Lord. Pursue holiness, without which no one can see God. That's the book of Hebrews. You have to pursue it. Jim, you're coming dangerously close to suggesting that my efforts make me holy. No, I'm not. It's coming dangerously close to saying, look, you've got to put forward the effort. God will not do your heavy lifting for you. You, you have to do the heavy lifting. 
But here's the good news. You're going to find on the other side of doing the heavy lifting that it's God who lifted through you. And He gave you the grace to do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to have to give an account. But when you do do it, guess who gets the glory? God does. Because you didn't do it. He said, but I did do it. Well, you did, but you didn't. You did. You did, but He did. You didn't do it, and He did. I don't understand that. You can join the club. I don't understand that either. But that's the way it is. Paul said, the grace of God toward me did not prove itself in vain. I labored more than they all. I am what I am by the grace of God, yet I labored more than all of the other apostles put together. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. I labor and I strive according to His power which works within me. So who puts forth the effort? You or God? You do? Some of you are not sure. I don't know, me or God, I don't know. You got me confused. I thought it was me at the beginning of the sermon. Now you got me all confused and I'm not sure where to go with this. Is it me or is it the Lord? That's right. It absolutely is. You have to do the heavy lifting. You have to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, here's the beautiful part about that promise. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For godliness, bodily discipline is of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, listen to this, since it holds promise for the present life and also for what? The life to come, Paul says. You and I are going to be rewarded in spades for eternity. You think, I don't, I don't want to work for 70 years. Let me tell you something. After the first million years, when we all get up off of our faces and we start looking around heaven, trying to wonder what are we going to do for the next million, that 70 years is going to look like nothing. And with every passing eon of time, for all of eternity, it's going to, be, it's going to grow less and less significant. But godliness, the godliness that you discipline yourself for, it is profitable for eternity. There is a payoff at the end. There is something for those who will put forth the effort to sanctify themselves, to put forth the effort to discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness. You say, is it really worth it? It pays off in spades in this life, and it will pay off in spades for eternity. We just have to trust that. That the effort that we put forth, God will bless and He will honor, and it will be to our benefit for all of eternity. Because it's profitable for that life. And we do this with fear and trembling. So I read the Bible with fear and trembling. I pray with fear and trembling. I serve the Lord with fear and trembling. You know why the fear and trembling? You know why I fear? I fear and I tremble in the presence of God because I know just how inwardly corrupt I am. And I know just how weak I am. I know how just how faulty I am, how faithless I am, how, how uh, flippant I am, how irreverent I tend to be. I fear and tremble because I'm involved in the work. I actually have to do it. That makes me tremble. It's not if it were all God, it would be fine. I would be fine with that. But the fact that he says to me, you do it and here's your responsibility, now you put forth the effort, that makes me shake. Because I know how inwardly corrupt I am. I know how subtle sin is. I know how little I trust myself and my efforts. And you and I know that even our best works are not good enough to, con to count for anything before him. Even our good deeds are sinful. Because they come from us. So I fear. And I tremble. We'll look at the second half of the equation next week. It is God who is at work in you. This is the good news. I don't think for a moment that just because you're told to work it out, that God can't have anything to do with it. 
Because He does. Friends, the captain of our salvation has instructed us, work it out with fear and trembling. Put forward the effort, and He promises that He will reward it abundantly, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we do love You and we thank You that You have called us to holiness. We thank You that You have predestined us to be conformed to the image of Your Son. And we ask that You would now encourage us to put forth that effort to work out our salvation, to live this high calling that we have been given, and to do so with the proper amount of respect and reverence and awe before You. Thank You that You are holy, and may we treat You and revere You as such to Your eternal glory and the praise of Your Son. We ask it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.